0: Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this spring will offer special volunteer vacations designed for visitors to spend a day doing a stewardship project and another heading out on a wild Tillamook Coast adventure. It's free and a way to have fun and give back and we'll have more details a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks during winter and spring to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to buy firewood from the park or nearby community to avoid bringing invasive species, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. Alright, in today's episode, we're talking about fishing for Oregon's delicious and fun-to-catch mini salmon. The silverfish that turns adoring armies of anglers from rational humans into obsessive cokeheads. But don't worry, we'll explain. First, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, in today's episode, we're going to talk about a particular type of fish that is becoming increasingly popular to target, and that is the abundant and glorious kokanee salmon. Now, unlike the salmon you're probably thinking of that spawn in Oregon's rivers, head to the ocean to grow up, and then return to their birthplace to complete the cycle, the salmon we're talking about today are landlocked and can be found in large numbers in Oregon's lakes and reservoirs. Our intrepid outdoors journalism intern Charlie Geering has been writing about these fish, and he joins us again today. How goes it, Charlie? Hey, Zach. Doing great today. Happy to be here. All right. So the fish we're talking about are salmon, but they're salmon that live in lakes and can actually be stocked in large numbers at reservoirs, and in kind of in the same way as rainbow trout. So to tell us about kokanee and why anglers love them so, uh, especially lately. What can you tell us about, Charlie?
1: So what what's going on here? What are kokanee? Well, kokanee, like you kind of mentioned, there are landlocked relatives to sockeye salmon. And they've become popular in recent years for numerous reasons. Um, the first reason is that there are a lot of them. Uh, they school up in our reservoirs and they make for some really fun, can be kind of active, fun fishing. Um, the second is that they are frankly delicious. We'll get to this more later on. But kokanee is great eating. Now, the third, and this is probably the most important bullet point and kind of the story of the popularization of kokanee, is that the declines in other salmon fisheries has led a lot of anglers to turn their focus, energy, time, and and overall money uh, to kokanee fishing. Um, The seafaring salmon fisheries have struggled mightily over the years. Um, This has been well documented, obviously. Dams, seals, climate change, uh, food chain issues in the ocean. These are all kinds of things that have led to an expedited decline of sea run salmon in our rivers. It's made it really hard to find them, much harder, obviously, to catch and harvest them. There's just a lot of red tape with most salmon now and steelhead as well. Um, But with kokanee, um, they're predictable, they're easy to stock, kind of like rainbow trout if you have the right ecosystem. And a lot of fisheries have so many of them, in fact, that their bag limits are upwards of 10 fish. For salmon anglers, anglers, this is a huge attraction. Maybe they're not as physically large as other salmon species, but you sure can catch and eat lots of them.
0: All right, so I've been fishing for kokanee a few times and have really enjoyed it. Uh, a little while back, I went kokanee fishing at Green Peter Reservoir with fishing poets and avid kokanee angler Henry Hughes. So in this audio clip that I took while we were fishing one of those times, he talks about kind of where kokanee came from, why they're fun to catch and fun to eat, and just kind of sums it up. So here's that audio. I'm Henry Hughes, and uh, I'm an active angler,
2: and I like to write about fishing, think about fishing. I I teach for a living, (laughs) but I love getting out on the water and fishing. And this is one of my favorite uh, lakes. We're at Green Peter Reservoir. And uh, it's an impoundment on the uh, Middle South Santiam. It's a beautiful piece of water, about 10 miles long, uh, deep, average 100 feet. It goes as deep as 300 feet in spots, and it holds a lot of kokanee. And kokanee are a fascinating fish. They existed naturally when the ice age, you know, kind of waters retreated. Uh, sockeye salmon populations were separated, and it created actually like freshwater landlocked populations of these fish and what's great is uh, (laughs) they flourish in reservoirs and there's a lot of controversy right about damming rivers and I agree with that it's a big problem for salmon and steelhead but it creates great recreational fishery for a lot of people and so Green Peter is one of those places that holds a lot of kokanee also has rainbow trout Uh, there's some smallmouth bass here and some other fish I love coming out here in late season too there's fewer boaters and we're gonna try uh, trolling with downriggers, getting down deep, and trying to find some of these beautiful fish. Wonderful eating fish, too. I love the uh, the kokanee.
0: What, is, what what do kokanee look like? How big do they typically get? And, uh, you know, what do they... Because you think of a salmon, yeah. you think of a big hog right. that's coming exactly. into the ocean. But these fish don't really look like that. So. They
2: don't, they don't. Sockeye salmon are not the largest of our Pacific salmon. They probably range uh, 10 to 15 pounds. The kokanee is considerably smaller. Really, between honestly 10 and 15 inches is a, is a decent kokanee. There have been some big kokanee caught. Oregon is, I think, holds the world record. Uh, Wallala Lake in eastern Oregon, uh, a gentleman caught a, a kokanee over nine pounds a few years ago. And occasionally, a big kokanee will appear in certain in certain ecosystems. But no, these fish are going to be, you know. Uh, 12 inches to 14 inches. Occasionally we'll get some bigger fish. Uh, other, other lakes in Oregon do hold some larger fish. They're lovely. They're streamlined. They're silvery. They have a deeply forked tail. So it is, it is a salmon that just uh, has a smaller world. And this is their ocean. You know, The lake is their ocean. They do in fact go up the creeks. They're starting to do that now to spawn. Uh, they do stock these lakes as well, but there's some natural reproduction. And it's just kind of like a little microcosm of the ocean, and that's that's what they are. So
0: that's crazy. I, I actually didn't know that. So kokanee are sockeye salmon. They are. But naturally, they were segmented into confined bodies of water.
2: Correct, correct. Uh, in the northwest, uh, from California up to Alaska, British Columbia has fantastic kokanee fishing. That's where the word kokanee comes from. It's an Okanagan uh, word, uh, Columbia Basin, a uh, Native American word. And they have been introduced to other parts of North America because they're they work really well in reservoirs. Yeah. They've been introduced all over, including like New England. You mm-hmm. know uses them now, so it's a it's a great fish again for for eating. Yeah. <laughs> they're fun to catch. They can be abundant, and they're just so good to eat.
0: Yeah, and you talked about like you know it, it's difficult to catch a salmon in a river. Often, I mean, you get a you're very yeah. limited in the yeah. number you can catch. So, Correct. what is, is that part of what makes company fishing appealing? Is it's like a little part of salmon fishing, but without the amount of work and limits on it?
2: Yes. There's a different kind of work involved, and you'll see uh, there's a, really a subculture of kokanee fishermen in Oregon and probably throughout the Northwest. Uh, you know, once you get your gear, it does require downriggers and some, some soft rods. They have very soft mouths and, and some specialized gear. But once you get that, you can go out and pretty comfortably catch you know many fish. The limit on Green Peter is 25 kokanee. So for someone who's got it down, to, to bring home a bunch of fish to eat is so nice. And there's action. So you're reeling in fish, you know, all the time. Where, yes, I love salmon fishing, steelhead fishing, but it could be all day with one hit. We've all been there. And that that has its own kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> sublime joy. But kokanee fishing provides a lot of action. And so it does appeal to anglers. And and, and the conditions are easy. You don't have the rough weather, the, the you know, the, the rough water. So I think it does really... Uh, Attract a certain kind of angler who wants to take home some fish.
0: Yeah, and this is a pretty easy, peaceful place. I mean, looking out, you got you know the reservoir, you got right the the mountains kind of surrounding it with some some clear cuts, and you know it's just a beautiful blue sky day out here. You hardly any chop on the water at all. Exactly.
2: The wind does come up sometimes in the afternoon. That's why I like getting an early start. But in any case, it's still a lot uh, easier to fish out here than it is like around the Alsea Jaws or something. We got current, rip, and other boats, and Mm -hmm. you know. uh, So this is a nice, uh, comfortable, easy Mm -hmm. fishery. Yeah, this so this guy was down to 90 feet, which is more predictable
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, for this time of year. It's a beautiful kokanee, about 15 inches. Really nice fish. Um, so that's where I expect to find him this time of year, down deep where it's colder. Mm-hmm. And that uh, we saw the, uh, the rod just kind of dip, dip, dip on mm-hmm. the downrigger, and you did yeah. a nice job popping it off the clip mm-hmm. and uh, reeling him in. It's a beautiful fish. Was so that
0: about 15, 16 yeah. inches? Yeah,
2: it's a nice fish.
0: All right, well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, Charlie is going to talk to us about the recent kokanee boom at Detroit Lake before we look at places where kokanee are actually native and naturally occurring and about how they change color when they spawn. So that's when we return.
3: I'm Sarah Gafori with American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors.
0: It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. Beginning in the spring of 2023, the Tillamook Coast Visitors Association is excited to announce a volunteer vacation program that will bring groups from inside or outside Tillamook County to lend a hand in stewardship programs while also having a good time. One example of an itinerary would be spending one day clearing an invasive brush or working on a hiking trail while the next day could include a guided hike or kayak trip, the type of activity that highlights the Tillamook area and shows why doing stewardship projects is so important. All meals and transportation are included for the groups that take part, which will ideally be between eight and 12 people. The experience is free for those who take part. The program is designed to offer participants the opportunity to give back to our popular area while also learning the vital role stewardship plays in preserving our natural places. The program website will launch in March, so stay tuned for that. But if you want more information or to sign up early, contact Dan Hag, and you can reach him at dan at tillamacoast, all one word, dot com. All right, welcome back. Well, Charlie, Green Peter is far from the only local spot to go fishing for Kokanee, not even close. So you focused your reporting at Detroit Lake, east of Salem, which was home to the recent Kokanee Derby and where Kokanee fishing has really taken off. So what makes Kokanee a good fish for Detroit Lake? Like, why do they why do they work there?
1: So that's a really good question. And I, I talked with Elise Kelly, who's an Oregon Fish and Wildlife Biologist, and she had a lot of information about what makes Detroit a really great habitat for what's become a pretty well-established kokanee population. Uh, the two main things that go into this are spawning opportunities and, of course, food abundance. Uh, kokanee are stocked in Detroit Lake, but that does not mean that natural reproduction doesn't occur. Uh, kokanee in Detroit Lake and many other places, they travel up rivers to spawn. So if you think about Detroit Lake, kind of at the intersection of several rivers and creeks um, like the Santiam the Brighton Bush, and then a few other creeks which flow into the lake and can be accessed by kokanee that want to spawn. This is a really good lake for them to be at. Natural reproduction has worked really well there, accounting for 50 to 70% of the overall catch, uh, according to some of the population monitoring results. As I mentioned earlier on, food sources are also really vital with kokanee because they actually are a little bit picky. They feed on predominantly zooplankton, which are these tiny little living organisms that drift around in the water tables, typically at deeper depths, but can be found, you know, throughout the strata of a lake. Detroit is chock full of these. So that's been no problem as far as introducing and adapting this landlocked population of kokanee there. The final thing to think about, and I think this is really important, is that kokanee are not predators. They don't eat, a, they don't eat other fish. So that's a huge plus when you think about introducing them into a, a new ecosystem. Obviously, Whenever you bring a new fish into an ecosystem, it's going to make some ripples. It's going to change certain aspects of the food chain. But if that fish is a predator, it could really throw things out of whack. It could eat native fish, consume eggs, and kind of interrupt the overall natural flow of an ecosystem. That has not been the case with kokanee, so that's a huge plus there.
0: Yeah, so you actually went out fishing uh, with a couple of guys at this organization called Kokanee Power and got some audio. So who are we going to hear from and, and what are they going to talk to us about?
1: So in the early stages of my reporting on Kokanee at Detroit, like I came across a pretty massive Facebook group, which is Kokanee Power of Oregon. This is a nonprofit organization that works with ODFW to maintain and expand Kokanee populations and habitat throughout Oregon. They're super passionate about what they do, how they do it, and of course the fish. They're all also expert fishermen. Uh, Brad Halleck, who is the treasurer of the organization in Oregon, uh, was generous enough to take me out on the water for a pretty good day of kokanee fishing, all the while giving me some really great information about the Detroit Lake fishery, what makes these fish so cool. So without further ado, here's Brad Halleck of Kokanee Power. What are some of the main challenges with sustaining the Detroit coconut population?
3: Right now, I think it's the pressure. Back when we first started you know this up here, on a day like today, you'd have maybe 15, 20 boats on the lake. Um, now the parking lot's full. Even in March, it's completely full. Since they've started messing with the salmon fishery so much, you see all these salmon boats up here fishing. You know, why not? You're catching salmon, they're just a little smaller. But you can keep 10 of them, so you get a nice meal out of it. So the fisheries changed a lot. Man, when I first started kokanee fishing, you come up here in March, there's three or four boats out here. There's like nobody. Now, like I said,
1: um, back in March, there was 100 boats on the lake one day. The whole parking lot was completely full. So uh, So you think there's a correlation between the depletion of the salmon runs and the difficulty involved with fishing those, right? Oh, absolutely. And the popularity of kokanee and, and... Thus, the kind of challenge, which is fishing pressure.
3: Right. So, absolutely. So, the the, uh, the fishing pressure for kokanee has increased dramatically over the last five years.
1: I would say. Tell me a little bit about. Uh, you know, people always say they're really great eating fish. Mm-hmm. What are your What are some of your preparations? Some of your recipes.
3: I like to grill them on Traeger. Um, I'll also. Uh, I flay them. All, I always flay them. I'll either grill them with skin on on the Traeger, or I'll flay the skin off, and I'll panko them, and and fry them, and put a little sweet chili sauce on them. It's just it's so good. <laughs> um, that's one of my favorites. Um, I'll also take them in a, and I'll check, chunk up fresh one into small chunks and make patties. Mix it in with panko and green onion and stuff, and make patties and freeze them. And then I can take patties out and and uh, fry them up.
1: Taste wise, do you, how do you compare it to trout, salmon, other types of salmon, chinook
3: or? It's way better than uh, trout. Obviously, it's got more oil content in it. It's. It's much milder, it's just a beautiful tasting fish. It's very similar to a sockeye salmon.
1: Explain oh. some of the techniques, like explain what we're doing right now and, and another way to do it or the other ways to do
3: it. So, right now we're downrigger fishing. Um, so, it gives us an accurate depth by using your downriggers. Um, your other way is what we call long lining where I'll just put on a little heavier Dodger and I'll let my line out 150, 200 feet and that'll get me down about 10 feet. Uh, Kokanee, the coconut the like 55 degree water. So once, right now there's no strata in here. So they're kind of all over the place. Once the lake stratifies and you get that 55 degree band in there, that's where you're going to find the coconut. Um, so as, as as you go later into the summer and the surface temperature starts to warm up, the coconut go down deeper and they might be down as deep as 100 feet later in the summer. So your two main ways to catch, catch coking is trolling or jigging. Jigging's fun because you get a line out there and you feel them hit and boom, you got fish on. Um, so jigging's a lot of fun. Is it a little more
1: interactive? Yeah, rod in hand the whole you got time. the rod in
3: hand all the time. You're, the way you jig for them is so you, you, you lift the jig up, and you let it come down. You always want to keep your line tight to your jake because they typically will hit it on the fall. So you want to be able to feel that hit and be able to stick them with it.
1: These fish aren't that large compared to other salmonids. Uh, do they fight pretty well, pound for pound? Yes, good. Thing. They're good fighters.
3: They go crazy when you catch them. Whereas a trout, you can tell when you got a trout on, because generally when you're bringing them in its mouth's open it's dragging water and it's it's just you know it's not as good a fight kokanee just flipping all over the place mm-hmm.
0: so one of the things that we've heard from both henry and brad is that kokanee are good eating so Charlie, I know you're a pretty good fishing chef. So how do you, how did you cook up these tiny salmon or what are your kind of suggestions on the topic?
1: There are many, many ways to cook coconut that I've heard are all delicious in their own right. But the way that I chose to do it a few weeks ago turned out pretty awesome despite being kind of primitive. I was camping, didn't have a whole lot of high quality cooking supplies at my disposal, so I kind of went rustic with it. Basically just got a nice big campfire going, wrapped the flays in some tin foil with lemon, olive oil, pepper flakes, butter, garlic, you know, some kind of basic seasonings and laid it over the embers uh, for about 10 minutes. I had it over some rice and and man, it was it was some really good stuff. I highly recommend doing it that way. But again, everybody's got their favorite recipe and admittedly, you know, I can't wait to go out and catch them again because uh, I would love to try it with with some more gear and equipment at my disposal, you know, being in my kitchen with pans, pots, and all the stuff that you need to cook a really good meal.
0: Okay. So I'm curious the way you did it. um, Did you, you left the skin on, right? And did you eat the, did you eat through the skin and was that tasty?
1: I did leave the skin on and and yeah, it was pretty good. I mean, um, it's kind of nice if you, I find that if you put it right on embers like that, it can get get really nice and crispy and be really, really delicious. I mean, I think you know I kind of have an aversion to eating the skin it's not you know if unless it's really really nice and crispy which it mm-hmm. was in that case so
0: well I'm just curious because I've cooked them up a couple times and I found the same thing like if you can get the skin nice and crispy it's pretty good and you can just have, just have chunks of it instead of like because when you flay it and you take the skin off like you only I mean they're not giant fish and so there's only so much meat that you're working with um so I was just I was just curious about that as, as somebody who cooks them up. One thing that's pretty interesting about kokanee is that while they have been stocked in places like Green Peter and Detroit Lake, as we talked about, they are naturally occurring in at least two Oregon lakes. So first, can you tell us about that and how they actually change color when they spawn? So where are they naturally occurring and what is this, you know, when they, when they spawn, something pretty interesting happens.
1: Indeed. Yeah. So even though we mostly see kokanee as a stockfish fish in many of our lakes and reservoirs in Oregon, they are, in fact, native in two lakes, one of those being Wallawa Lake in the northeast corner of the state, and the other one being Subtle Lake in the Cascades. Now, Wallowa Lake remains a really good place to kokanee fish and was referred to by a lot of people I talked with as kind of being one of these gold star places that you can go and catch larger, trophy-sized kokanee. Now, those fish do not reach the size of, say, a Chinook salmon or anything like that, But they will be larger than most of the ones we see in Detroit, which are typically in the range from 10 to 16 inches for the most part, I believe. Uh, Now, like you mentioned, a really interesting thing about kokanee is that they have this crazy color change when they enter the spawning season. They go from this really beautiful bright silver to dark red. Kind of well, they develop a hook nose and actually a dark green head as well. It's really radical and really crazy color change. Uh, This is how... Fish, both male and female, show their fitness and attract mates. It has a lot to do with their diet, which is rich in these compounds called keratinids. Um, These compounds, over time, build up in a fish, and they kind of amass them by eating um, these zooplankton, and they make them look really bright and healthy. And then when their spawning time rolls around, these fish use these colors they've amassed as a way to attract mates, show off that they're healthy, well-fed, and have good genes.
0: Yeah. You know, it's actually at Wallawa Lake that you mentioned, it becomes a tourist attraction up there because there are places, you know, they, they head from the lake up into the creeks and stuff like that. And if you go over, if you go in the right place, you can actually see this happening. And it's, it's pretty popular. I mean, that's a big tourist area anyway, but if you're able to capture that um, experience, like it's really cool. Cause there's just like a rush of these fish that are bright red, just, just heading up there. And it's, it's a really cool experience so well anything else that you feel like people should know about kokanee or kokanee fishing one thing that i wanted to, to talk with you about um is i mean most kokanee anglers like the guys that get into it the cokeheads, as as we jokingly like to refer to them i mean they have pretty nice setups and boats so this is definitely more of a boat focused activity you kind of have to have your equipment dialed and it's not necessarily something that you can do so well from the, from the shore, correct? Cause I mean, you, you got to get pretty deep in a lot of cases and that's my understanding. I mean, is that what you found?
1: Yes, I, I would find that to be true as well. I mean, I think, you know, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's impossible to catch them from a bank, but your odds are, are really not in your favor in that case. I mean, a lot of these guys, you'll go out there and you'll see them on these boats, Brad being one of them, they've got, you know, numerous downriggers on their boats they're they're fishing at depths from like 40 to 60 feet a lot of the time and you know sometimes they'll come up to the surface and you know you can kind of um jig them at like you know closer to the surface depths and and those kinds of things but that's from what i gather that's not really um something that happens very often so you you do kind of need a boat it's sort of a boater's only fishery
0: yeah and i wouldn't say that it's not like You don't have to have the, the really fancy gear, um, that, you know, some of the guys we talked to have, like, I've actually just been out in a pretty simple setup and trolled, you know, in a, in a rowboat and you can still catch them that way. So it's not like it's, you know, a completely like elitist fishery or anything like that. Um, but it just, it, it helps a lot. Like the reason these guys get so passionate about and get into that, that gear is, you know, when you've got your equipment dialed, your odds of success are just so much
1: higher. (laughs) exactly i mean you see people out there and you know kayaks pedal kayaks and and fishing kayaks these kinds of things so it's not like you need super advanced gear it definitely helps sonar helps a lot electronics help a lot to find those fish because they do school and it can be kind of cool actually to see them on these sonars like when we were cruising around, you could actually see the lure and then you could kind of see these fish kind of running towards it as, as an attractant. And it was kind of cool to watch (laughs) that. I've never done, I've never seen that before, you know? Um, and then another thing I wanted to add too, is that I, I did hear that people do, you know, target them as they go up the rivers, um, you know, fly fishermen, these kinds of things, like you can bank fish them at that juncture kind of, uh, when they start to spawn. And I believe that usually happens in the fall, but I don't think that's a super popular thing to do. Either.
0: Okay. Well, anything else uh, we should know about kokanee or
1: kokanee fishing? I think we pretty much covered it. Uh, thanks for having me on, Zach. And, you know, for any listeners curious about kokanee fishing, I hope you'll find the opportunity to go out and give it a go. It can be a really good time.
0: All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than sixty episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com/explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com recreation map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.